Our text for this morning can be found in your program. It's from the epistle of Second Peter. I'm going to invite all you who are able to stand while we read it together. Second Peter, the first chapter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Thus endeth the reading for this morning. You can be seated. Father in heaven, one of your precious and great promises is that your word would not return to you empty. And so we claim that promise this morning. The world will not long remember whatever I have to say this morning. But your word stands eternal. So we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit to move among us this morning to do your work through your word. These things we ask is your people in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Sharon and I have a wedding anniversary uh, coming up in May. I just mentioned that in case you're out shopping. (laughs) See something nice. Um... And it, it, it will be for us, um, I think, um, 32 years? Okay, but well, who's counting, really? 32 years. And, and just a quick public service announcement. I don't know why this seems like it's fashionable, but it seems like these days when people talk about marriage, especially when you're talking about marriage to younger people, right, who aren't married yet, is you hear people say stuff like, you know, marriage is hard. Right? Have you noticed that marriage is hard? It takes work. And we wonder why people are delaying marriage, right? Marriage is hard. 
So I just, I just want to go on record. My public service announcement is that marriage, for those of you who haven't tried it yet, is actually awesome. Okay? Marriage has been, for me, one of the greatest sources of blessing in my life. You'll have to ask Sharon later how she feels <clears throat> about it. But, but that's the ground truth for me. And, and your reaction to that statement this morning uh, probably is reflective of your own most recent experiences. You may have memories of pain, not necessarily of, of, of awesomeness, but likely it's because promises were not kept. When we make promises as fallible people, we tend not to keep them. But God is faithful even when we are not. And whether you're in a place this morning where you can say amen to that or whether you're just kind of rolling your eyes, um, you know, it doesn't change the fact that God intended marriage for our blessing, that he intended us to tie the ropes of our lives together with Christ at the center in order to bless us. And it doesn't change the fact that does, marriage is something that has to be cultivated and tended to as the puzzle pieces of our lives fit together, kind of. And it doesn't change the fact that it does take effort, doesn't it? And there's, there's something that we like to do that maybe you do the same thing, uh, especially at, at the, around the time of our anniversary, but all throughout the year, is we like to tell the story. We tell the story back to each other about how and why we came together, right? How we met, why we fell in love, what we most appreciated about each other. We reminisce, we retell the stories. And as the years have gone by, I've realized more and more that it was the power of the promises of Christ at the center of the marriage that's really kept us going and not so much the promises that we made to each other. We were, I think, 20 years old when we took those vows. We had no idea what we were getting into. (laughs) How could we possibly have made promises about those things? And then we expand the story. We tell our children the same story. We retell those stories to our children, speaking of eye-rolling, um, about, you know, again, how we met, the origin story. And, and, and we, we talk about the promises that we've made and by, through the power of God that we've been able uh, to keep over the years. And, and this circle gets bigger with, with baptism, right? Because you just heard another set of promises. You heard the promises of God spoken over this family. We heard promises that the family spoke. We all made promises at the same time. These are really important foundational promises. We can't forget these things. And yet we're a really forgetful people, aren't we? We forget the things that we should be remembering. And Peter, I think, is very aware of this. And so telling us not to forget to remember, to forget to, don't forget, he says, this morning is part of his text. And I think maybe that the the analogy to marriage is an imperfect one, but it was on my mind as I was reading this text. So let's jump in. I would invite you to keep the text open this morning uh, as I jump around. And in fact, let's start uh, at, the, at the end rather than at the beginning. At the end of the text, uh, verse 13, Peter says this, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This second epistle is our last word from Peter. And here he shares how he, how he knows that he's nearing the end of his race, and he does feel a sense of urgency. 
Although what's interesting is he doesn't feel a sense of urgency about himself. He feels a sense of urgency to impart a word to the church for us. And in this, he is being faithful to a promise made. You may remember some of the events of Peter's life. In particular, I'm thinking of the end of the the Gospel of John after the resurrection when Jesus and Peter meet on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and they have this conversation. And Jesus says this to Peter, Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Well, feed my sheep, Jesus says to Peter. And here, at the, near the end of his life, you don't see Peter giving in to any sense of sentimentality. He's not waxing nostalgic about his life. And he's not looking forward to a nice, quiet death on his bed, surrounded by all of his loved ones. In fact, if you, if you continue that dialogue that Jesus had with Peter, it goes like this. Very truly, Jesus says, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, and you went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he says to Peter, follow me. Peter is facing a martyr's death. Church tradition has it that Peter was crucified, just like Jesus, only upside down, most probably in Rome for preaching the gospel. And yet, Peter doesn't seem to be all that concerned, does he? He has no qualms about this. He's not worried about what he's going to say when he meets Jesus again face to face, which for him is not be the first time. He's not buffing up his resume. And Peter has an impressive spiritual resume, doesn't he? I mean, in terms of works righteousness, Peter has got a lot going for him. If Peter were to write his resume, um, he very easily could have, he could have talked about that time. He preached that amazing sermon in the streets of Jerusalem where thousands of people were saved. We repeated his words this morning at baptism. The guy is famous. Could have talked about the time, I remember the time I walked on water, or the time that he raised a woman from the dead, or the time that just his shadow casting over people who were ill cured them of their diseases, or the time he faced down the Sanhedrin and received a whipping for it, or the churches that he founded, including very possibly the one in Rome. Peter has every right to lean into his resume. He has every right to reflect on a career of towering spiritual achievements and to tell us, what have you got? Can you match this? Y'all ought to be trying harder. But that's not what he does. Does he? Matter of fact, let's look at how he leads into the text, how he introduces himself. I think this is a reflection of how the life of Peter through a life of discipleship has changed. So how does he introduce himself? Simeon Peter, a servant. A servant. Doulos, a slave. An apostle, yes, he does use that word, but he leads with the title that I think that has grown the most dear to him, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and, and that's it. I mean, you don't get any of that fluffy introductory stuff that you'll often find in epistle. There's none of that, how's your mom and them, none of that stuff. Peter has got a sense of urgency about what he's got to say. And I think it's a reflection of how the grace and the peace through a life of discipleship has been at work in his life. And so, yes, he mentions the fact that he's an apostle, but it's almost like it doesn't matter. And in light of all of that, I think what he says next is even more surprising. Simeon Peter, a servant, apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, fine. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Well, equal standing with Peter? I mean, we call him St. Peter. You may have seen him on a stained glass window somewhere, right? I mean, a capital A, apostle. Equal standing, is that even possible? And yes, Peter says, yes, it is. And he explains how it's possible by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So apparently it's by Christ's righteousness, not by ours and not by Peter's, that he has standing before God. And notice the word that Peter uses to describe how we got this salvation. It is obtained. Now, the Greek here is a reference to something gained not by effort or by deserving, but almost by lot, like it fell into our laps. It's something we didn't expend any effort to get. So the very word that Peter uses to illustrate here shows us how futile it is for any of us, including Peter, to boast in our faith. It came to us by God's choice, not by our effort, which is part of the reason we baptize infants. Which brings us to Peter's first big point, and it's a big one, that we are all saved the same way. Peter, us, all of us, by grace. Apparently, as it, as it relates to our standing before God, there is no class system. There is no merit-based system in God. It's all of grace. And I think Peter, of all people, knows this well, because in addition to the impressive parts of his resume, the part you put on the first page, there are a few gaps in Peter's spiritual resume, are there not? I mean, we could go on and on about them, but not the least of them is the time when he boldly, kind of proudly declared in front of all the other disciples, Jesus, I don't know what the rest of these guys are going to do, but when you go to the cross, I will go with you. I am willing, I am able to experience the same death that you experience. And then less than 24 hours later, he had denied him three times, called curses down upon himself, and when Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he needed him the most, Peter was where to be found. He had run away, bravely run away. And even after Peter was restored and forgiven, his path to discipleship was not an uninterrupted stream of success, was it? Um, you, could re- you could recall the time, for example, when uh, Paul had to oppose him to his face in front of the entire church because Peter was falling back on works righteousness and the works of the law to justify himself, and he was forgetting about grace. Everybody knew about that. We're still talking about it today. Interesting that later in this epistle, Peter refers to Paul as a dear brother. So I think of all people, Peter knows that when he is fully, finally sanctified and he is translated into glory and he sees Jesus face to face, for him, again, not the first time, he's not going to bring his resume and say, I've 
done a good job, now accept me. He understands that in Christ, he is already accepted and that, his, that the basis for his admission into glory is Christ's resume, not his or ours. Peter's resume didn't earn him God's favor. Peter knew that his life had no intrinsic value other than being loved by God, just like us. And what's, the, what's been the impact of this grace on the life of Peter? Well, grace and peace, as he says at the beginning of his letter, they're multiplied to us. How? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. By the way, take a quick look at verse 2. If you're the highlighting type, God himself is saving us. And this phrase, God and Savior, is one of the clearest attestations to the divinity of Christ you'll find in the New Testament. Certainly not the only one, but it's a very clear one. And as Peter even now contemplates a martyr's death, he comes to us not full of anxiety, but full of grace and peace. Which brings us to Peter's next big idea. That it's God himself that is enabling this translation, this transformation, and works his will in us. He not only calls us and saves us, but he gives us everything we need to be his people, to grow into our calling and our identity in Christ. We've got a fancy church word that we use to describe this process of becoming more Christ-like. Right? It's Sanctification, very good. So Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. We're saved from sin by the grace and the power of God in order to live into this new life, which we do by grace and the power of God. So according to Peter, this new life, this sanctification process, is not a DIY process. It's not like a Home Depot type of thing, right? where God saves us in the past and then says, all right, you guys are on your own. Go take care of business. Peter does not say, uh, look at my life and be inspired by it to work harder. He doesn't tell us to earn it, and he does not tell us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. In fact, look to what he says in verse 3. He says, we are, his divine power has granted all these things. And he even goes so far as to say, we are partakers in the divine nature. He doesn't say we're gods. He says God is at work in us. And again, when you think about the timeline of Peter's life, when you think about the pre Peter, right? The, the anxious Peter, the nervous Peter, the one that's full of both spit and vinegar and anxiety at the same time. At what point in Peter's life do you really see a transformation taking place? Pentecost. Once again, Peter's kind of hiding out in the upper room with all of the other uh, disciples. The Holy Spirit comes, inhabits all of them. Peter walks out into the street the same street that he was hiding from people just a few weeks earlier, and starts preaching boldly. And it's this divine power inhabiting Peter, transforming him, that all of us have union with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit is a gift that every believer has, young or old. It's God at work in us 
just as he was in Peter's life. And does Peter's journey toward sanctification end there? Is it like, hey, I got my injection of the Holy Spirit? I'm good. I got this. No. Peter, just like Jesus, points us to the necessity of staying intimately connected with the Word of God, constant contact with God, in order to fuel, to receive the power of this new life. You may have the Holy Spirit. That's awesome. But this is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives through the ordinary means. Prayer, meditation, apparently fellowship, as annoying as that is. So Peter's third point is how God does this work in us. How does he do it? Look at verse 4. Through his precious and great promises. We heard quite a few of them this morning. And these are the... And this is how the divine power of God works in our lives. Peter is saying you can't ever forget the promises of God because they are the foundation of this new life in Christ. And there are so many of them. I'm sure you've got them all memorized. I certainly don't. So we should spend a lifetime every day of thinking about these promises, the way we think about the promises that were made in and around our marriages, the way we think about the promises that were made in and around this baptism. Only in this case, the promiser is not a fallible human being, but it's God himself. And Peter here is telling us, reminding us, remember, remember, remember every day the promises of God because this is the foundation for your new life in God, remember, remember that the Holy Spirit has regenerated us and has given us new lives and new identity in Christ. Remember that this same Holy Spirit enables us to understand and obey his word. Remember his promise to work in us and to make us like Jesus by yielding spiritual fruit in our lives. Remember his promise to help us to overcome temptation. Remember that he intercedes us constantly before the throne of God. Remember that he would give us wisdom if we ask for it. Remember that he would promise that he would break the power of sin in us, that he would remake and then give us the new desires of our heart, and that he would delight in doing this abundantly, that we can call upon him in our days of trouble, and he will answer us in a way that gives glory to God that he would never leave us or forsake us, that he would destroy the works of the devil both in this world and in our lives, and that he would sing over us, that he promised nothing less than that we would be like him, that we would see him face to face, that he would wipe away every tear from our eyes, and that we would live with him in glory. And these, these promises, and these are just a few, these are given by a God who uh, swears by his holy name to keep them, and they are sealed, and they are purchased in Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And they're given to us by sheer grace. Friends, how many days... Have we tried to white-knuckle ourselves through the Christian journey? And I think Peter here is telling us, it doesn't work. I tried it. Go to God. It's his work in us, not our work for him, that will bring us to God. Rest in him. And there's more to the story, apparently, according to Peter. Living into this new life, this new calling, is not a passive, 
process for us. That's the bad news. Christ's work was not passive or easy. Look how many times Peter saw Jesus, the only man who never needed any sanctification, wrestling with his mission and his calling. Uh, up all night in prayer, staying, uh, memorizing the word in the constant fellowship of his heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. But at all times, with joy set before him. And by the power of God, Peter has followed his example. And he's exhorting us, he's encouraging us to do the same. So Peter goes on and he describes um, what this looks like in our lives. We have, apparently, we have responsibility to cooperate with this grace. We have work to do. If you look at verse 5, make every effort, Peter says, make every effort. Anybody have that in a bumper sticker on their car? Maybe an inspirational saying in your kitchen, make every effort. And what is it that Peter says that we should make every effort to add to our salvation? There's a list, and they build on themselves. Faith, trust in God in increasing measure, so that we don't just believe that God exists, but we we come to the point where we can say Jesus is Lord over every part of our lives. I will trust in your ways for me, not my ways. Virtue, good and useful qualities, spiritual gifts, Attributes, qualities, seeking his wisdom uh, in every uh, goodness, integrity, um, knowledge, knowing God, not just his character and his attributes and his qualities, but, but seeking his wisdom and applying it to every situation we find ourselves in. Self-control, being led by the Spirit rather than being carried along by our own desires. Uh, Peter may be sanctified, but he's still Peter. Uh, if you read on in this epistle, he gets pretty wound up about false teachers, and he talks about this very issue. Steadfastness, being resolute or firm or unwavering, not being blown back and forth by public opinion. Peter struggled with this. When he was opposed by the Jews, he sometimes stumbled. So steadfastness is something that Peter had to work on. Godliness, being like God, having the aroma of God around us wherever we go, our hearts being an altar for the praise of God to dwell in. Brotherly affection. Apparently, this is not a solo endeavor. Um, Love for the family of God, um, for the siblings of the family of God, being focused on others, not just being inwardly focused, having an attitude of hospitality toward the stranger. And what's it capped off with? Love. So it starts with faith, and it's capped off with love. And these things should be ours in increasing measure as we go through our lives. They should be hallmarks of Christian character. But what about grace? I thought you just got done telling me all about this thing called grace. I thought Peter said that God provides all that we need, and I think this is something that we struggle with. Uh, We're all about the power of God, all about the promises, but we've got work to do. I thought if I just slipped my Bible under my pillow that I would wake up the next morning all sanctified. Like, woo, I don't understand how this works, but that was easy. Apparently there's more to it than that. And I think it's not just Peter. I think this is the consistent testimony of the New Testament. Jesus, after all, said, take up your cross and follow me, no matter what the cost. These were his words to Peter, who said, yes, Lord. 
The call of Christ was a call to discipleship. He didn't call us to like him on Facebook. He called us to come and to follow him every day of our lives, to leave the world behind. Romans 8 talks about putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And uh, putting uh, uh, Ephesians 4 talks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Paul is always talking about running the race or beating the air. I mean, for Paul... The, the, the Christian uh, pilgrim sanctification journey was like an Olympic event, right? I'm not sure if it was winter or, or summer, maybe both. Uh, but he's always going on about boxing and training and all of this. Peter, in his first epistle, says to the church, gird up your minds for action. Timothy 6.8 talks about fighting the good fight. And Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the full armor of God. Does any of this sound passive to you? Why do we need armor if we're not going to war? And this process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, living into our Christian identities as children of God is something we are called to do, to work at, to dedicate ourselves to. It is a gift of God, but is it a gift to be exercised? And I'm going to be honest, I think, brothers and sisters, this is the hardest thing you and I will ever do. Because when we join the family of God, this epic conflict between good, good overcoming evil that stretches all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that war, that conflict is joined in us. There's a very real sense in which declaring allegiance to Jesus Christ is declaring war on the powers and the principalities of this evil age. The devil would like nothing better than to keep us deceived, in darkness, slaves to our passions, blind to the majesty of God. He's content to let us amuse ourselves to death. But when you say Jesus Christ is Lord, it's on. You come off the sidelines, you put the uniform on, you take the red pill, and you become alive, all of us. As as James said in his prayer, having a soft heart is hard in in a difficult world, isn't it? We come alive to the groaning of all creation, experiencing sin and yearning for its restoration. That happens right in here. It is not a pleasant experience, and it's not easy. And that's why it completely relies on God's power working in us, doing the transformation. We couldn't possibly do this on our own. And he calls us to join with him to make every effort. The only way to reconcile these statements in the Scripture, make every effort, and my strength is made perfect in weakness, is at the cross of Christ. Because only there do we understand how low we actually are Right? We're, we're lower than we ever dared tell ourselves, and yet we're also more glorified than we ever could have thought possible because at one point our natural state by birth is it was completely impossible for us to obey God. God working in us has regenerated us and has now made it possible for us to obey God. And this is the call that he puts on our lives. Work with me. I'm working in your life, making you a new creation. Join with me. They're not two ideas. They're one. My strength is made perfect in weakness, and make every effort are one in Christ. He has saved us. He has given us new hearts, new minds. He's enabled us to understand 
uh, the gospel. We're able to see him for the first time as true and beautiful and good. And by that very same grace and power, he is saving us at work in our lives, bearing spiritual fruit, working through our daily lives to make us more like Christ. That grace will achieve its final aim, complete and total salvation, when we're finally completely free from all of the sin that so easily entangles. And we will be with Jesus face to face, and we won't show him our resume. We won't show him Peter's resume. We'll show him his own resume. And then our salvation will truly be complete. But our work and our mission and our calling will not be. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, liberated finally completely from the weight of sin, we will realize that our Heavenly Father was preparing us in this life to live fully into the life to come. As we journey farther up and deeper into this new country and the life to come will finally, finally be fully living the life that he intended us to live all along. Brothers and sisters, the struggles of sanctification are temporary. Paul likens this process to the process of giving birth. Painful, yes. Does it take effort? Yes. Totally worth it. And yes, God, we have a God that meets us at the margins. None of us is too far away from God for him to save us. But his love is a transformative love. If there is no change in us after we meet Christ, we are not becoming what he intends us to be. We're not living the Christian life. The, the Christian life is not just a set of, of uh, doctrines to be uh, accepted. It is a power to be experienced. So, how do we avoid some of the traps? For example, how do we fall into the trap of becoming driven by works righteousness because of this? Make every effort. I got it. I got work to do. Check. That's so inspiring. Thank you for that. It's just what I needed to hear. No one has ever told me that. I need to work harder. Or for that matter, how do we avoid the other extreme, which is my personal favorite, lying in a bed of spiritual laziness, kind of waiting for God to do all the work? How do you avoid the endless treadmill of religious self-righteousness and just, you know, sloth? And I think that's, again, that's the genius of uh, Peter in this text. Verse 9. Remember, Peter says, whoever <clears throat> lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And again, verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. He's not telling us to go and do a new thing. He's reminding us of what we already have. Don't forget, he says. We're so forgetful. Remember what you've already obtained. Remember that our justification is always earned by Christ every day. Remember what Peter was told by Jesus early in the process of being called as a disciple, along with all the other ones. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And implicit in that statement is a promise. I will make you mine. I will transform you. You already have my love and approval. Let me do my work in you. We're such a forgetful people, aren't we? We, we forget. 
what we should remember, and we, we remember things that aren't true. And we sometimes, I think, we, we think about our salvation, even though it's by grace and our justification by grace is something that took place in our past, and now we've got to take it from here, and that's not what Peter says, is it? It makes about as much sense as forgetting what we said when we got married. I don't remember. I may have said some things. It's a long time ago. <laughs> forgetting what God promises us at baptism. If we lose sight of the love of God as the basis of our justification, we'll struggle with our sanctification. These words of Peter, I think, are a bit of a litmus test for us. They should fill us with joy. Great joy. Was it an obligation? Was it out of obligation or guilt that Peter uh, was driven to live a life of holiness? Do you pick up any sense of that here? I look at Peter's life and I see a path that even though it was rocky, like every pilgrim's progress, was infused by joy, just like the mission of Christ. If you flip forward to the first epistle of Peter, verse one, verse eight, chapter one, verse eight, here's what Peter says to the church in his first epistle. He says, though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What kind of joy? Inexpressible joy, apparently. Boundless, infinite, inexhaustible joy. Joy that loses itself in the object of its devotion, full not of ourselves, but of glory. Not mere happiness, not just freedom from overcoming some of the uh, difficulties and pains that we have in this world, but soul-changing, light-giving, eternal joy. Friends, I think one of the many reasons to believe in the authenticity of Scripture, the resurrection of Christ, and the real presence of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer is because here we see Peter nearly at the end of his life, more full of faith, love, and joy than he's ever been before. Servant Peter bears the hallmarks of a life of discipleship, and he's trying to cheer us on. Why is this so hard for us? I think ultimately, uh, it's like John Calvin says, we're in perpetual conflict with our own unbelief. We can't believe, really, that we can't pay God back. We can't, we can't, we can't, that we can't trust God for all that we need. I mean, there is something in us that wants to take pride, right, in, in some of our own spiritual accomplishments. You know, I did okay. And when that happens, if we forget the basis of our salvation, we forget where the power comes to live the Christian life, when we hear, make every effort, we're going to hear law, not grace. And this passage tells us to work at our sanctification. I mean, that's what it says. But unless we remember that we're saved by grace and that our sanctification is an ongoing, gracious work in our lives, we're not going to be able to do it. When we see the commands of God outside of the love and the grace of God, uh, we're going to react, I think, in two different ways. And ironically, I think they're both designed to do the same thing, as if it were possible, to try to keep God at a safe distance. 
The first one, as I mentioned before, this is my favorite, my personal favorite. Just ignore the command, <clears throat> right? Basically, we say, you know, God, if you were really loving, you wouldn't ask this of me. If God were really a loving God, he wouldn't say this. Does that sound familiar to you? Maybe the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, when the snake came to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say? What was their response? Well, I don't know. By the way, if they had been focused on the precious and very great promises of God, they would have had a good answer, and we wouldn't be here today. <laughs> right? But they fell for the lie. Why? Because they... they God didn't really mean that, I'm sure. It all depends on your interpretation, I think. That's just, you know. And at the heart of this particular fault, I think, is this view. I think David mentioned this last week that really at the heart of heart of it, God is a cosmic killjoy, and he's really intent on keeping us from true happiness. That's really what we're, that's really what we're saying. I know better. I know better how to be happy than God does. I'll just have to work this out on my own. It's a type of unbelief. It's a lack of faith. That's not the heart of God. And I think for some of us, if we're honest, we have maybe the opposite problem because we may suffer from a type of what I call Christian workaholism, right? We're on that treadmill of works righteousness. Oh, Jesus wears me out, right? And there, your mental image of our Heavenly Father is he's some sort of harsh taskmaster, and we start to sound like the, the older brother and the prodigal, Remember? He's very angry with his father for celebrating his younger son's return. He did not participate in the joy of his father. And according to Peter, that's not Christ either. And we can fall into a type of formal legalism, which, like I said, I think is just another way of trying to keep God at a distance because if we, uh, if we reduce our relationship with God to a transaction, okay, I hear you, make every effort, check, here's my resume, Here's, this is an invoice, God. You owe me. I did what I was supposed to do. Now you owe me some stuff. You've got to overcome this trouble in my life. You know, you can go all the way down the road to a prosperity gospel. But ultimately, it's designed to do the same thing, to say to God, I've done my part. You can't ask any more of me. Is that what Peter's doing here? Peter easily could have said, look at my resume, look at all the good I've done. Now, can we renegotiate the terms of my exit? I've been a good boy, why do I still have to die a martyr's death? God, you owe me, and you can't ask me anymore because I held up my end of the deal. Do you see that anywhere in Peter? Now, Peter knew the cost all along. Peter, unlike most of us, was front-ended on this deal. Jesus was very clear with him. Peter, come and follow me. By the way, here's how it's going to end for you. And Peter wouldn't have it any other way. Because the promises of God are that precious and that full of glory. So friends, what do we do? Well, this is the point which I'm supposed to say. This is, I get paid to say this. Do I get paid? No, I don't. Y'all should repent. You should knock it off. You should stop being that way. But do you pick up any of that in the text? Is that what Peter 
is saying. Now, Peter, Peter is saying, turn your eyes on Jesus, our God and our Savior, and remember the promises of God. Stay close to him all the time, every moment of every day, through prayer, through reading of the word, through fellowship, to never, ever fall into the trap of thinking too much of ourselves or too little of God. And this is ultimately the secret to experiencing the true joy, grace, and peace of the Christian life Peter is talking about. So what do we do? Ah, beloved, this morning, if, if you're realizing that somewhere along the way, you lost the joy of your salvation. Peter is saying, <clears throat> go back to the source. Renew the vows. Oh, no, no, not the vows that you made to God and broke. The vows that he speaks over you every day because he's faithful and we're not. Remember and recite Every day, what Jesus Christ has already done in you, what he is doing in you, what he will do in you. Remember that it's our identity in Christ that defines our life's purpose and meaning, and that this life is a calling. It's a calling to come out of this world and to follow Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, come and follow me, yes, but he also says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light because the debt is already paid. I'm calling you to enter into the joy of your master. I think at some point in Peter's life, he had to have stopped and said, Lord, you're going to have to do this because I can't. And that was a turning point in his life. Peter is saying with these words here and with his life, yes, be overwhelmed, but don't be overwhelmed with the impossibility of giving back to God or living a perfect life. Be overwhelmed with, the, uh, with God's faithful, everlasting, day-by-day, efficacious, promise-keeping, glorious love for us. Christ's words for us who are tempted to going back to being dead in our sins is like his words to Lazarus. Rise up and walk. Throw away the crutches of duty and doubt and run to me on legs of joy. And this is why, friends, make every effort. Is not Peter scolding us like naughty children, forgetful children. But it's, it's rather, it's Peter cheering us on to live a life that matters, to run the race set before us with such a great cloud of witnesses, which now also includes Peter, cheering us on to a life of discipleship, of consequence, a life that is not wasted, a life of service, a life with horizons that reach out to eternity, a life that follows Jesus as a lamp in a dark place, a life even for those of us who have not seen him that's full of inexpressible and glorious joy.
Amen.